Alright, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishman Monday edition on an unremarkable day. No sirens in the background, so uh, we'll be waiting for those to fire up here in a second. Somebody is going to commit a crime somewhere. This is Kevin Williamson. I'm sitting here with Charles Cook. Charles, talk to me about Common Core and uh, educational standards in general. Well, people reasonably frequently ask me about Common Core. This is something conservatives are very involved in and are very upset about and in all honesty my interest in common core is a general one uh, i don't have a specific set of objections i have spoken to a number of parents who dislike it and famously louis ck said it made his children cry and he wasn't joking but my objection really is to any national curriculum i come from a a family of teachers. My mother is a teacher. My sister is a teacher. My sister's husband is a teacher. It's a small family, so that's most of it. And I have seen what uh, centrally planned education does to the people on the ground. Now, England is a unitary state. It's a small island with about 60 million people on it. America is a collection of 50 states. It's not a unitary state at all, despite how uh, it is on its way, damn it. Yeah, despite how it's sometimes run. It's also 3,000 miles wide and uh, extremely diverse in the real sense of that word. So uh, Common Core could be full of the best ideas uh, that the educational establishment can come up with. And it would still uh, be difficult for me to get on board with it because I don't... Uh, I, I need to stop you for a second, though, because you just used... <clears throat> a phrase that I think has to be challenged, which is the best ideas the educational establishment can come up with. Now, this is, we were talking about this last week, I think, this is not something I like to say in the context of policy disputes a lot, because, you know, when people call people on the other side stupid, it doesn't really advance the argument. And whatever people on the right think about Paul Krugman or John Maynard Keynes or any of these people, they're not stupid. The educational establishment is stupid. And there is empirical evidence for this. Uh, you know, people going into education majors in colleges have, sure. by like an order of magnitude, lower SAT scores than journalism majors do, for God's sake. And journalism majors are pretty down toward the bottom of things. So, yes, you may be right. These may be the best ideas that the educational establishment can come up with. But that is sort of, you know... That is a flat-earth way of looking at the world. I mean, their, their point of view is certainly... But I cut you off rudely. Please continue. Well, no, it wasn't a value judgment. I said they may be the best <laughs> ideas that they could come up with. I just think you have to footnote that. The best ideas these morons can come up with. When uh, the National Health Service in Britain was being explained to the public, uh, an Iron Bevan famously said that no bedpan would clank in a British hospital without the reverberations being heard in Whitehall. <laughs> and this was, in other words, to be by design a centralized government-run system. It wasn't uh, inadvertent. It wasn't the only way of achieving what the Labour Party wanted to do. And there is, of course, a big difference in health care between uh, agreeing on the principle uh, that nobody should go without healthcare and having the government run all of the hospitals as they do in Britain, having the government oversee and staff all of the hospitals as they do in Britain, and uh, 
adding to the system unions yeah. and bureaucracies that are interested uh, in maintaining the status quo and who can be bought effectively by politicians. Now, the American system of education, at least in its nascent form, was heavily fractured, uh, in part because of, first there was no system, right. but when there was uh, a system, it was spread across the country in various forms and those on the ground were empowered. Is it 37 we get our first mandatory uh, education law in the modern era, 1837? Um, something like that, yes, in, in Massachusetts, yeah. and uh, I think maybe 1843, anyhow. But the principle of, of we can't use bedpans, but let's say pencils, mm. uh, falling and being heard in Washington is a terrifying one. And I think for two reasons. I think firstly it's a terrifying one because governments cannot possibly run from the center an educational system that is supposed to cater for people in 50 states in different cities with different cultures but also supposed to cater for children who generally need very different things from one another and develop at different rates in 110 million different households absolutely and the second reason is that government should not be doing this now i don't know which one of these you want to take first they are of course uh, entirely separate questions yeah but there is something sinister and insidious and always potentially corrupting about having a school system that is rigid uh, at all, let alone one that is run uh, or populated or whose curriculum is set from the center. So I don't know where you want to start, but I think it's worth saying that when people ask me about Common Core, that tends to be my primary objection before we even get to what it might say. Yeah, I agree with you. I uh, don't want there to be any such thing as federal education policy. I just want the feds to leave it alone. Uh, in fact, I'd like the states to leave it alone. And really, I'd like the municipalities to leave it alone. I mean, frankly, I would I would close down all government-run schools if, I, if it were left to me. I would fire all the employees, burn all the records, sell the buildings, and uh, insult the earth afterward. If, if possible, I think the public schools are the most destructive uh, public institution in American life right now. They do. Why? Well, because they fail to educate the people whom they're most there to serve, which is to say people who don't have a lot of resources of their own. They do a pretty good job with you know upper middle class to, to well-off people who are going to get well-educated one way or the other anyway. Uh, they inculcate ignorance. Uh, they teach people things that aren't true. Uh, they distort people's habits of thinking. They are prison-like environments that uh, poison the love of learning and people. I think they're just terrible, terrible institutions. And there's a reason, you know, in places like New York City and Philadelphia and Chicago, that public schools architecturally and procedurally resemble prisons, because that's what they are. Um, they're essentially, you know, just warehouses for populations that the government feels they need to keep under control and, uh, you know, build fences and put in cameras and install guards and, and all the rest of it. They're very inhumane places. Uh the other thing about this, and I think this is where you know something else we agree on, was whether the federal policy ends up looking like Common Core or No Child Left Behind or something you would design or something I would design or something Rick Santorum would design. It's going to be a bad idea, no matter who's in charge of doing it, because the very idea that there should be one model of education for as large and, as you said, diverse a society as we are, is preposterous. I know this is a line I've repeated a lot, but it's true. We have 900 kinds of shampoo. Uh, 
mm. uh, for sale in retail outlets in this country. Tell me about one model of education. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert on shampoo, but I do know a little something about education. That's just not how it should work. Uh, different people need different sorts of education. Some people need uh, preparation for a liberal arts education in college. Some people are looking to go into a vocation. Some people need extra help in some subjects. Some people have extra talents in some subjects. And the idea that you can have one national policy to make all this work is, is, is frankly insane. It's a 19th or even 18th century idea in a lot of ways. Uh, these are ideas that um, they don't really go back to Bismarck and Marx, but they were certainly uh, sort of systemified uh, by then. The idea of society as one big factory and uh, workers and future soldiers and statesmen and such as the raw materials and the schools being there to produce them like widgets so that they can serve the state in some particular kind of way is uh, there's nothing in society that works that way. There's nothing in a modern capitalist society that actually functions that way. I mean, can you imagine us saying, well, you know, computers are really important and they're so important to everyone that we're going to have one big government factory run by Washington that produces them because we think that'll work better than having lots of people producing them in competition, different kinds at different prices for different people. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard for me even to imagine what sort of mindset it takes to think that this monopoly slash cartel model is the best way to arrange this. And this takes into account, I think, you know, from my point of view, that um, education is among the most important activities in a modern society, certainly among the most important economic activities. And it is an economic activity. It provides an economic good at an economic cost. Uh, there's almost nothing you can do for a society that would be as productive and as, as contributing to growth and prosperity and well-being as having a proper, effective system of education. We don't. We have the opposite, and we spend tremendous amounts of money doing tremendous amounts of harm and negligible amounts of goods. So, uh, yeah, I, I would just love to turn it over to the uh, to the private sector. And I, I, I and just to just close out on this, uh, if you feel some egalitarian impulse that you feel like there needs to be a guarantee that everyone has access, the thing I would point out is that there's a tremendous and important difference between having government fund a service mm. and having government provide that service. You know, we have food stamps, and for all the problems with the food stamp program, they work pretty well. And they certainly work better than having government try to operate farms and food processing centers and grocery stores and distribution networks and retail and warehousing and refrigeration and all the rest of it. You can give someone a voucher, as we call it in the context of education, for, uh, for dealing with that without having the government try to run the schools like some sort of, you know, Prussian factory model of society. Right, and that was my that point. That was a bit of a rant, sorry. No, but that's good. I mean, I have a subsequent question. I also want to talk about culture, but that's exactly my point with the National Health Service. And I, and I suspect that the problem with American education and the problem with British healthcare are, in some way, the same. And that is that the British are sold in a way that the Americans are not on the idea that universal health care is not only a right, but is the hallmark of a civilized society. They're not or haven't been so sold on the idea that that means that the way in which health care is run has to be exactly as it has been since the late 1940s. And yet, because it has so much invested in it, the left has managed successfully to conflate those two 
things. Yeah. So that if a British minister stands up, and this goes for Tony Blair as much as it does for David Cameron, stands up and suggests that maybe this part of this hospital should be privatized, or the procurement process should be open to competition, or that a hospital shouldn't necessarily have each and every one of its staff employed directly by the national government, but maybe should contract those roles out, then the left immediately and successfully convinces the British public that the principle of universal health care is under attack. And I see similar, uh, I see a similar political problem with the public schools. That is that if you suggest that even if you're in absolute support of every American child being paid for in their education by the state, even by the federal government, which I would oppose tooth and nail, but even if we took that as our, our starting point, there is no reason whatsoever that one would need to indulge the teachers' unions with everything that they want. There's no reason that the government would have to own all of the buildings and run all of the you know, janitorial tasks and so on. And yet the minute that you say, let's go for education reform, the teachers stand up and say, you are undermining the principle of yeah. education. And you're, I mean, beyond the question of whether the government owns the buildings, I think the really interesting question you know, going forth from here is whether education even needs to happen in a building. Uh, there are lots of interesting things going on with online courses and distance learning that have tremendous uh, you know, returns to scale once the materials are developed. Uh, it's not good for everything that students have to learn, but it's good for lots and lots and lots of that stuff. And, of course, you know, people's needs being different, but it's easy to see that if we had an actual you know, consumer-driven, market-oriented model of education, you would have something like you know, maybe half to two-thirds of instruction happening online, uh, intensive, you know, sort of tutorial-style sessions or small classes for for the for the bits that don't. Of course, it would vary from subject to subject. I mean, you know, foreign languages and things like that are probably going to need a little more in-person attention. But um, you know, we would be able to actually deploy the capital that we put in the service of education to its to its best use, which would have a revolutionary effect on the American economy and on American society. Um, you know, you uh, if you look at, you know, the worst performing schools, which are in rural areas and in inner city areas, and you hear a lot of, you know, sort of dumb debates about, well, maybe these kids just aren't that smart and they don't have the potential to be, you know, as educated as some of the other kids are, yada, yada, yada. Even if you assume that's true, even if you assume this sort of, you know, biological determinist, uh, you know, genetic view of intelligence and uh, educability, there's still no good argument, I think, that we are educating people to their fullest potential under the current model. Uh, so we've got a lot of people out there with a lot of talents and a lot of energy that aren't, uh, that aren't putting them to any use because they don't give them the opportunity to. Right, and, and we also, a word I use a lot in relation to education, we fetishize public schools. Yeah. Well, not just credentials, uh, but we fetishize public schools as somehow being a civilizing influence. But if you look back to, you know, even between the sort of 1640 and the middle of the, of the um, 18th century, literacy rates in Massachusetts and Connecticut were, were pretty high. So you had about 91, 92% of uh, males and 60% of females. By the time you get to uh, the point at which the likes of Horace Mann, the Massachusetts educational reformer, has decided that America needs to go all Prussian, and import 
a German system of education that was set up quite literally on the opposite principle uh, that, on which the United States was founded. Um, you have literacy rates in Massachusetts of almost 98%. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, Massachusetts has literacy rates of about 90%. <laughs> You know, and this is after uh, 100 years, 150 years in Massachusetts's case, uh, of public education. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there are some other factors involved in this, one of which the historian David McCulloch points out is that people are no longer raised to, say, read the Bible, and, and biblical literacy, uh, or rather the literacy that is the <coughs> product of widespread uh, biblical understanding, uh, is, is not something that you can just or should just as a government bring back. There'd be all sorts of questions. But you know, that was something that spontaneously happened. Yeah, well, something we, we talked about quite a bit before, which is the, uh, <clears throat> you really can't overemphasize, I think, the importance of Puritan and, to a lesser extent, Quaker uh, culture and, and sort of general nonconformist, nonconforming, uh, you know, Anabaptist kind of culture on uh, New England and the New World uh, in, in, in the early American colonies. And, you know, this particular thing, this dedication to being able to read scripture yourself uh, has enormous uh, cultural import. Because well, a lot of people, I think, really undervalue this because they say, well, they, they learn to read just so they can read the Bible. Look, okay, even if that were true, which it's not true, but even if it were true, to be able to really effectively and literately read the Bible, you have to be pretty well educated because it's really sophisticated work. Um, it's a bit like... <clears throat> well, it's a lot like the role that the Quran plays in the Middle East, where there's a you know, tremendous amount of literacy and a high value placed on scholarship because of the you know sort of religious need to interact directly with the uh, scripture. So I, I think this is a great example of the fact that culture always trumps policy. You know, we've we had various uh, you know sort of local and colonial compulsory education laws, and over the years, I was we we're talking earlier about the old Deluder Satan Act, which is my favorite name of a law ever. Uh, and those are the first, uh, you know, the old deluder Satan, blah blah blah, this and that. And it was basically, you know, to make sure that people were uh, were literate and able to read the scriptures, so they wouldn't be uh, ignorant. Or more to the point, and this is, you know, this is 17th century uh, Massachusetts, led astray by uh, any Catholic sympathizers out there. No, but and, but and the Catholic point, and, and I'm about to, to start with a, a ostensibly anti-Catholic point and move on to an ostensibly anti-German point, <laughs> which makes me very British for the morning. But well, the Austrians must drive you crazy then, German and Catholic. <laughs> well, we've talked about this before, the importance of, of Protestantism mm. uh, to the American ideal. It, it is much easier to instill a, a hierarchy, possibly a monarchy, and to deprive people of their individual liberties when you are the one interpreting what the book that they believe to be God's final word um, says. You, know, you, you can stand in front of them and say, well, no, we will conduct these services in Latin. And simply by saying the words, you will be saved. Rather than the individual Puritan who looks at his book, knows precisely what all the words mean, and if somebody comes along with a different interpretation, can argue it. Hmm. You know, by cutting out that middle man, you do create a culture in which uh, politics becomes much more easily relegated to a relationship between an individual and a state that serves them rather than an individual being placed within a hierarchy. So that's the, that's the first point, and I think that's extremely important uh, just, as a, just as a philosophical issue mm -hmm. um, when, when looking at, say, the school system because you know it was in the interests of 
the uh, the Puritans to have their populations educated, even if that led to uh, a rebellion. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I'm not convinced that if you asked your average public school administrator, do you wish your students to be well versed in education reform, <laughs> that, that that they would, for example, say yes. And the the second point is, for some reason. Uh, throughout the 19th century, but especially at the beginning of the 20th, the British and uh, American and Canadian elites became obsessed with Germany and Prussia. And it wasn't as if they weren't doing well on their own. I mean, in in 1900, the first day of 1900, the, the front page of the Daily Telegraph in London was a long essay explaining why Britain needed to become more like Germany. Now, Germany had a lot of great qualities in 1900. Scientifically, certainly, it led the world. It was a rising power, unfortunately, as we subsequently subsequently learned. It was a a, a literate and forward-looking sort of place, and it had much to offer uh, in technology. But it was deeply illiberal, in my sense of the world. And Britain at that point wasn't exactly doing badly. Britain ruled the waves, had since 1815 been pretty much in charge of uh, the entire world, uh, had an empire that stretched, uh, well, was larger than any empire in in history. Uh, The Americans were doing extremely well in 1900 as well, and Canada was was, uh, totting along rather nicely, thank you very much. And yet we were utterly obsessed with the Prussians, and we were especially... Uh, keen on uh, on copying an educational system that had been primarily set up to ensure obedience to the state and preposterously after the 1807 defeat uh, of of the Prussians by, by Napoleon to ensure that soldiers and the government class weren't too independent minded yes now it, it strikes me that the combination perhaps of an educational system that was contrived by people whose national values are so different to those on which the Anglo-American settlement was based, and uh, a government centralized bureaucracy uh, that took it over, are just toxic. Yeah, I think that um, on your list of things to admire about the Germans and Prussians, the relevant one was the first one on your list, which is that at the time they <clears throat> led the world in science and uh, scientific achievement. If you look at the um, the intellectual history of that era, the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, the um, the political classes and the sort of humanities classes are starting to intellectually catch up with the industrial revolution a little bit. And what breaks out at this point is um, <clears throat> it's an almost embarrassing episode uh, of what I like to call science envy, uh, where things like uh, you know, what we used to call civics or political economy becomes recast as political science, uh, where the idea of scientific socialism starts to really cash on on the left and some other places uh, in the political spectrum. The idea that you can manage a factory or a society the way Henry Ford managed his factories, uh, these become very, very popular ideas. And science at this point is enjoying so much prestige because it accomplishes so much during this period of time. You know, uh, if you even look at the, uh, you know, modern standard model of, of physics, uh, 90% of it gets completed in the, in the early part of the 20th century. 
So there's enormous, enormous progress there. And people who aren't in the sciences and people who aren't engineers start to want to have that same sort of prestige and reliability and predictability. Now, part of it's just self-interest. We want to be prestigious the way the physicists and the engineers are. But part of it's intellectually serious. Part of them, they think that they can actually figure this stuff out and plan the world out the way that... Um, well, you know, something happens in a test tube. Yeah, and, and you also see that sort of envy creep into higher education. Yes. Previously in the, in the United States, because it had largely copied the British system, the uh, focus on in higher education was on the classics and was on the arts, and where there was rigorous testing, where there was uh, a, a curriculum based upon experiments and research, uh, was, was science. Mm -hmm. And suddenly... The PhD changes from being, you know, doctor of philosophy in the English, the Latin sense of that, person of great knowledge, person of free inquiry, person of rational thought, and moves to a place where people studying English literature are engaging in research projects. Yes. And that was a real departure from the way that places like Oxford and Cambridge, uh, well, that Oxford and Cambridge largely kept their British character, which is nice, but had, had influenced the world. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's not just kindergarten, literally garden for children, we'll grow the people that we want, but it's all the way up to the top. It's the, the, the liberal arts, as typically practiced by the British, uh, became infused with this sort of Prussian... I mean, I, I don't want to use the word too lightly, but what we're both driving at is scientific socialism. It's yeah. the notion that if you can work out how many uh, knives a factory in Sheffield can produce in a given day, given this much steam, these many, uh, this many machines, and a foreman who is running shifts every four hours, then you can run your schools and your military, and worst of all, your free and private civil society that way as well. Is, is, that, is that too far? No, I think it's, it's precisely what's going on. You know, um, <clears throat> even in, you know, in the field of uh, you know, literary studies, which is my background around this time, is when you start to see uh, what used to be called literary criticism uh, start to get supplanted by what becomes known as literary theory. You know, these systematized uh, approaches to explaining uh, X, Y, and Z rather than studying things in the you know, sort of traditional, humane, and liberal way. So, you know, part of it is um, science envy. Part of it is classes of expertise uh, trying to come up with a policy rationale for putting them in charge of things and letting them uh, program things. But part of it is an actual, at this time anyway, legitimate and sincere belief in the, uh, if not perfectibility of society, at least the uh, ability to, to rationalize it. You know, in the 1930s, the uh, Soviets, uh, who took very seriously Mises' criticism about the impossibility of making economic calculations outside of a system of market prices, started this program with what they call cybernetics, which is where we, uh, the word comes from, where they start working with, uh, you know, rudimentary, uh, well, I guess it's actually a little later than the 30s, I guess maybe it's in the 50s, uh, of sort of rudimentary uh, computers where they figured that they can eventually model the entire Soviet economy so they can rationally manage and plan it there. Uh, you know, these ideas all, again, go back to this, uh, you know, sort of metaphor uh, that, that became taken literally as, as society is one big factory that can be planned out and rationalized uh, and everything, you know, put in its place. 
And I think that that idea is still very much with us because if you're a person in power, you know, if you're the Department of Education or a functionary therein, or you're in the Treasury Department, or you're the local school district, and people say, you know, what's the best way to do X, Y, or Z? You don't want to answer, well, not only do I not know, but there probably isn't an answer because it's going to be contextual. It's going to depend on who we're trying to do X, Y, and Z for and in what case. And if it's true right now, it might not be true in six months or six years. Uh, you know, people want answers. They want uniformity. They want consistency. And they want it to be universal. Uh, so it's why we get things like No Child Left Behind, which is just an absolutely nonsensical policy based on a nonsensical idea, which is that there can be some national single standard for educational outcomes, which just doesn't make any sense if you know anything about the way any product works. So to bring this full circle, is there any hope in that, as you say, it is not a satisfying answer, it seems, for the electorate to say, not only do I not know, but I can't know, and I don't want to pretend to know. If you and I were to say we agree in principle, and the in principle matters because this is not a blank check, but we agree in principle that government should fund education for those who can't pay for it, but we have absolutely no idea how to run each and every school. Is that a realistic selling point? You know, I think that, uh, well, it's hard, and I think the schools eventually just go bankrupt and people start opting out. And, and so it will happen to, organically. Yeah, I think so. That's you know, part of the argument of my, my book. But... Um, I think it's an idea that people can get their heads around. So when someone says, what's the best model of education? Well, I would ask them, well, what's the best car? Well, what's the best car? Where do you live? You know, if you live in Maine, the best car is probably going to be a different sort of car than if you live in Colorado. And if your income is $40,000 a year, it's going to be a different answer from if your income is $400,000 a year. And if you've got seven kids, it's going to be a different answer than if you've got no kids. Um, I mean, there's just no one would actually think that there's a single answer to that question. Well, they don't, but but I'm and I agree with you. Incidentally, it's a Ferrari, California. <laughs> but uh, no, and I think that's a great question that, that I shall uh, steal and pass off as my own. But please do it. It it's not necessarily convincing. I mean, to me, you could ask and should ask the same question: What's the best type of health insurance? Yeah, what's the best kind of shoes? Uh, well, yes, but we have just uh, it's unpopular, which is possibly which is possibly our saving grace, but we have just passed a law that tells people, and, and this, is, this is posited seriously by people on the left, they, they say this as if it is a matter of fact and not of just subjective government choice. They say, yes, but you had bad health insurance before. You can't be allowed to buy that because it's bad. Right. How likely are we to go to a situation in which someone says, I'm doing this for my children, or at least how likely are we to opt into it? Uh, I'm doing this for my children because it's best for my children, when we're up against no-alls like that. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I think about that, which is this. Um, Obamacare passed for a couple of reasons. One was the promise, if you like your health insurance, you can keep your health insurance. The other is that people are highly motivated by risk aversion in the field of health care and health insurance. People didn't come out supporting uh, health care reform, quotes, uh, reform, inverted commas, as you would say, uh, because they want a cartel, they want a monopoly, they want it planned by Washington. The reason that people support this is because they're terrified of the risks involved. 
but you know, losing your health insurance, then going to the hospital and getting a bill for two hundred thousand dollars and getting bankrupted and all that. So, if Republicans had been smarter uh, and more aggressive on this, they could have addressed that issue. I think of uh, of risk aversion simply by uh, making catastrophic low cost health insurance more available, uh, subsidizing it if necessary, uh, changing some rules about, you know, licensure and state competition and all the rest of that, so that people would have, you know, that cutoff, that they wouldn't have that, you know, ruinous risk on the other side of some unforeseen health event. And then if you had done that, you can open up the market a lot to, you know, out-of-pocket expenditures and things like that. I think that uh, there's a similar dynamic going on in education because people with kids, you know, education is enormously important to them. They will stretch and move and get a second job and do whatever they have to do to get into a place where they can get uh, the sort of education they think their kids need. You make that stuff more available. Uh, you make sort of you know basic decent education more available, you know, either through a universal voucher program or something along those lines. And then you open the market up and let it compete. You know, this is where homeschooling is really interesting to me. Not that I think homeschooling is is the answer for most people. It isn't. I mean, for some people it makes a lot of sense. For some people it doesn't. But if you look at what the market's actually done in the world of homeschooling, it's really interesting. There are these, you know, very sophisticated curricula that have been developed, um, you know, all sorts of online stuff, uh, cooperative things, small classes. Uh, the market has provided, you know, extracurricular activities for homeschoolers who want to get together in groups with other homeschoolers and, you know, be in musical groups or play sports and do various other sorts of things. There's a real example there of the way innovation actually works. And if we had, you know, more people able to access those sorts of services, then they start to say to themselves, well, you know what, I can actually afford to pay for first class education for my kids, mostly out of pocket. And there's, you know, similarly, you can actually afford to pay for pretty good health care out of pocket if you happen to be in a situation in which you have access to that. You know, the story I always like to tell is that uh, my particular physician here in New York uh, that I mostly go to doesn't take insurance at all. I mean, you go into the office and you give them your American Express card or, you know, you, you write a check and that's what it's going to be. But it's so much different from other sorts of doctors I've gone to because I get a prize for something in advance. Mm. I say, you know, how much is this going to cost? How much is that going to cost? You say yes or no. And, uh, you know, granted, it's it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but still in a typical month, I'm paying more in insurance premiums than I spend on medical bills, even though I pay for it all out of pocket. Yeah, one of the reasons I, I like homeschoolers is, well, I was actually homeschooled myself for a year, um, and my mother being a teacher, that was a, a, a good thing to do. But one of the reasons I like homeschoolers is that they are a perfect reminder that the default is not public school, that the default is parental responsibility and parental choice. In England, I had always said that you could distinguish more than on any other issue the small-c conservatives from the lefties by asking them the question, should we ban the private schools? Now, this isn't just a question of class. It's inextricable from the question of class in England, as almost everything is. But by and large, the conservatives saw public schools, as you would call them, state schools, as we would call them, as being 
what the government had provided to people who weren't either teaching their own children or sending them to private schools. And the left saw them as the only option that anybody should be given. Yeah. So rather than looking at people who either school their children at home or send them to private schools and saying, thank you for doing that and also paying taxes, the conservative mentality... Uh, which was the conservative mentality, the leftist mentality was, there's something wrong with you, we need to shut down what you're doing. And I think that uh, is largely the same debate here. And it's nice the number of people in the United States who homeschool their children, firstly because it provides a sort of bulwark against, against usurpation, yeah. It would be very difficult to shut down homeschooling now. There would be a national outcry. It's not just theoretical, as it is in there many countries. There are people countries. trying to do it. Well, it's illegal, I think, in some European countries. But Germany. Germany. Well, there you are. And, of course, we go back to our, <laughs> our Prussian model. But, no, but because it serves as a constant reminder that the country was founded by homeschoolers. Yes. It was founded by... Uh, parents who took responsibility for their children's education and the public school system is the interloper and that should always be always be kept in mind yeah so motto for the day maybe won't close on a joke today but if it started in germany and it's not a car look twice at it <laughs>